Did you see that footage of Mike Tyson pummeling a fellow first-class passenger on his recent JetBlue flight? The age of cell phones, you can't just be beating people up on airplanes. Although it was decided that no criminal charges are going to be filed, if you watch the whole video, or at least the amount that was uploaded, you see that the man kept tormenting Iron Mike over and over again. Witnesses say he even threw a water bottle at him at one point. In the aftermath, many people who watched the video said the guy got what was coming to him. After all, he wouldn't stop provoking the champ. Now, in our text tonight, Isaac is provoked a lot, over and over again for an extended period of time. His antagonists don't throw any water bottles at him, but they do ruin his water wells. Isaac is provoked by famine, by fear, by foes, even his own family at the end. And as we see him react to these situations, we can see where he was spiritually successful and where he came up a little bit short. Now, this passage is interesting for a lot of reasons, but one reason it's interesting is because this is the only chapter of the Bible where Isaac is the main character. And yet, even though this is his chapter, everything we read here is a repetition of something that his father, Abraham, already dealt with back in his story. You know, when we watch a movie sequel, uh, we expect them to do some new things, and that's why we want to go to the sequel, because we like the characters and we want more story. We want something new. Reviewers get angry when it's just the same old plot done a second time. Think Home Alone 2 or one of the 40 or 50 pirate sequels that they did, right? It's always the same thing, just retread over and over again. We don't like that in our movies. And so why would the Lord can include something like that here in Genesis? Well, when we're talking about our regular lives, it's good to remember that there's nothing new under the sun. There is no difficulty that you and I might face, which would be a new experience that God has never had to deal with. There's no challenge uncharted, no provocation that is unprecedented. The things that we experience may be new to us, but they're not new to the Lord. And He has given us the record of Scripture so that we can receive His navigation for the challenges that we're going to face. Paul, of course, referenced these Old Testament stories, and he said, these things happened as examples, and they're written for our instruction. And so we see the same things happening to Isaac that happened before, but that's good because similar types of things are going to also happen to us as we live a regular life and as we walk with the Lord and as we encounter different people in different situations in this world. And so let's examine Isaac here who faced a variety of provocations in chapter 26. Starting in verse 1, it says, there was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines at Gerar. We're not given enough details to be sure when exactly this took place. Uh, Some think it was before Isaac had his boys. Some think it was after. What we know is that it was at least 40 years after Abraham had his interactions with the Abimelech in Gerar. Abimelech was a title, not necessarily a proper name. And so it's very likely that this is a next Abimelech, is just like we're seeing the son of Abraham, it's going to be the son of the Abimelech we met before in Abraham's time. Isaac finds himself in the midst of a famine. 
When we are provoked by something that is out of our control, uh, something like a famine, a crisis like that, what should we do? We see here that Isaac packed up and set off towards the coast. That's what his father had done before. But there's a spiritual component too. Look at verse two. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien and I will be with you and bless you. For I will give all these lands to you and your offspring. And I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father, Abraham. I'll make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I'll give your offspring all these lands and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Perhaps Isaac was on his way to Egypt and so had to be told by the Lord not to go down there. That seems likely. Uh, After all, that is also what his dad had done previously. In multiple ways, we're going to see Isaac following in the footsteps of his father, But he seems to have a somewhat selective memory as he's making these choices. He doesn't seem to remember that some of these great ideas that his dad had ended up causing really big problems for the family and uh, for the family of faith and even for Isaac himself. But here we see that Isaac was provoked by a famine. It was a high-level crisis out of his control. And so what was he to do? In that situation, the Lord provided leading. He had to go somewhere, otherwise his flocks would die. So where should he go? Uh, In this case, he shouldn't go to the natural place, which was Egypt, but to the place of the Lord's choosing, which is always uh, God's leading for us as we walk with him. Whether we're facing a famine or not, God always has a place of choosing. God always has an opinion. God always has a destination that he wants us to follow him into rather than just sort of sitting down and doing the math ourselves and figuring out what we think is best. One scholar points out that the word for live in the land there is a Hebrew term that conveys the idea of tent there temporarily. And it reminds us on a devotional level that anywhere we find ourselves in this life, it is just a temporary lodging place until we finally make it home. Uh, You may have have it made in the shade. You may be going through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, Whether you're on the good side of things or the difficult side of things, whether you in your forever home that people talk about that, you know, I find, you know, we built a custom home. It's our forever home. That's a term that we use. But of course, it's not our forever home. Our forever home is the one that Jesus Christ is preparing for us in the new Jerusalem. And so anywhere we find ourselves on this earth, in this life, it is a temporary lodging place. The Apostle Paul calls these bodies tents, tents that we're going to fold up one day so that we can put on our immortality. And so don't become so wrapped up in anything here on earth that you forget where your real citizenship is. Um, we, I've had the, the, uh, an opportunity to go a couple of times overseas to the third world. Uh, man, I, I never think, I can't wait to stay here in the third world uh, where there's no hot showers and there's, you know, the places I've gone, there are never toilets that you can put toilet paper in, that kind of thing. I never think, you know what, I'm going to build my forever home here in, in Pucallpa or, or here in Colombia, right? 
And in reality, you know, the worst of the third world compared to our world here, our life here, is still nothing in comparison to the best of this world in comparison to heaven, right? And so our citizenship is in heaven. We don't want to forget that, even when we are about our lives and about our business for the Lord here in the place that He has scattered us. Now, when Isaac was provoked by famine, he received the Lord's leading and he obeyed. And we should just take a quick minute to, to see here in verse 5 that the Lord's to be obeyed. Uh, God is not just sort of a, a weird power or a force that we, you know, engage with from time to time. Look at how, look at that list he gave there. He kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, my instructions. Your version might also say he obeyed my voice, right? I mean, so the Lord is giving this big list. He's like, I have something to say. I have commands for you. I have principles for you. I have mandates for you. You must do this. And of course, all of the commands and the words and the directions and the mandates of God come from a place of grace and love out of His character and His nature for us. We don't need to um, um, cringe away from God as if He's going to beat us down or anything like that. But this is the King of Kings who has a mandate for us. He has commands for us. He has statutes and instructions that must be followed. And so we see that Isaac obeyed. And in this sweet interchange, we see the faithfulness and the graciousness of God, as we always do. Abraham, the father of faith, the friend of God, he had a very special relationship with the Lord. He was gone, but covenant was still on. Uh, the Lord didn't say, you know what, I was friends with your dad, but you're not really, you know, friend material, you know. We're not best friends. We're just good friends. Like the Lord didn't say that to him. He said, he said, man, the covenant's still on. I'm still present. I'm still here. I'm still going to do everything that I said, everything that I promised to your dad. I'm, that's still going. And best of all, he said, and you know what? I'm going to be with you too. It wasn't just about my relationship with your dad. I wasn't just friends with him. I love you. I created you. I, I brought you into the world. I want to be near and dear to your heart because you're near and dear to my heart. And this is always what God has wanted for human beings. He wanted to just be with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, when he came into the earth, he said, hey, here's my name. My name's Emmanuel, God with us. We're told that in the new Jerusalem, we are going to see God's face, that he'll be so close to us, so present with us, that he will be our light. We'll have no need for the sun or the moon or the flashlight on our phones. The most important feature of your phone is the flashlight, right? Got to use that more than anything else. Here's what Revelation 21 says, speaking of our eternal state. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. That's God's idea of heaven, right? That's God's idea of just a really great time, spending time with us. Now, notice, if Isaac wanted to enjoy that withness that God was talking about, he would have to listen and trust and obey. Had he said, okay, Lord, you know, I'm glad that you've made this promise to me, but the smart money is to go down to Egypt. That's where the food is. That's where the provision is. That's, that's, that's where I should be going. I talked to, you know, to my business manager and he said, we need to get down to Egypt, so I'm going to go. Isaac could have done that. And if he would have done that, the Lord would not have abandoned Isaac or disowned him, but it's clear that Isaac wouldn't have been able to enjoy the blessing and the witness that God wanted to give him. And so the Lord said, listen, 
here's where you're going to find me. Within the confines of this place that I have led you to, that's where you're going to find communion with me and intimacy with me and friendship with me, revelation from me. That's where I deal with you in the way that you want me to deal with you. Verse 7 says, when the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebecca, for she's a beautiful woman. So after the famine here, we have a second provocation. He was provoked by fear. And once again, we see that he follows in the example of his dad who had done this very thing not once but twice. I guess he forgot how those stories ended when Abraham tried to work this out. A word to those of us who are parents in the room, your example matters. Not just your words, but what you do. You're teaching your kids how to deal with life by the way that you deal with life. Show them how to trust God. Show him how to go God's way. Try, try to allow the Lord to work through you to show them how God would have you deal with stress and deal with difficulty and deal with disappointment and those sorts of things. We're fallible human beings. We're not perfect. Parenting is a, a rough gig, as any parent in here knows, but our example matters. And training up a child in the way they should go includes us demonstrating that, hey, here's what God says to do, and so here's how we work together as a family to actually do it. When provoked by fear, Isaac chose to lie. So he falls short in this one. Here's the thing. Lying doesn't help you. Well, I mean, every single one of us in here have, has, has lied, right? Uh, on a small level, maybe on a big level. When you really look back, has it really helped you? Even if it got you out of a jam, did it really make you feel like you did the right thing? Uh, no, it doesn't. Lying doesn't help you. But more importantly, way more importantly, is this. God hates it. God hates it. Proverbs tells us, the Holy Spirit speaking in Proverbs says that lying is detestable to the Lord. He can't stand it. It says, man, seven things the Lord hates, and a lying tongue is one of them. When provoked by fear, Isaac should have decided to be true, to cling to the truth. Had he, ju he had just received strong personal promises from the Lord, that thing that he was so worried about, they're going to kill me on behalf of my wife, he, it, sh it didn't need to bother him at all if he would remember what God had already revealed and accomplished on his behalf. Of course, they weren't going to kill him. Now, that would have taken a, a great deal of faith and trust in the Lord. He would have had to look out there and say, man, like, even though it looks like I'm outnumbered, even though it looks like I'm in trouble, I know that they aren't going to raise their hands against me in this case because God has said X, Y, and Z to me, and I believe what he has directly told me. Jesus has told us outright that we do not need to be afraid. He says, you don't need to be afraid, not because nothing bad will ever happen to you. He says, definitely bad things are going to happen to you. But Jesus goes as far as saying, you don't need to be afraid even of people who might kill your body. And again, he doesn't say, I won't let anyone kill your body. He says, yeah, some of you are going to die for my sake, and all of us are going to die one day if the Lord doesn't uh, return before the end of our lives. But he says, even if somebody comes and kills your body, you don't need to be afraid. And he says, I have left my peace as a gift for you. He said, my peace I give you. It is a gift. And so in this kind of situation, 
this kind of provocation where we are provoked to fear, the answer is for us to walk in the truth. The Apostle John, in his third letter, he talks about how glad he is to hear that the Christians he was writing to were walking in the truth. In fact, he said he has no greater joy than to just hear that his little spiritual kids are walking in the truth. And so there's a lot of scary stuff out in the world, you know, near and far, but the Lord says, you don't have to be afraid of those things because I'm with you. And even though we face suffering and we face difficulty and we face tragedy and those sorts of things, I'm not making light of any of that, but Jesus says, hey, you don't have to be afraid of those things. You can walk in the truth, and the truth is I will never leave you or forsake you, and the truth is that I love you. The truth that is that the very worst thing that can happen to you is, is that, that you are killed physically, and guess what? To be absent from your body means you're going to be present with the Lord. Verse 8 says this, when Isaac had been there for some time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from the window, and he was surprised to see Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Abimelech sent for Isaac, and he said, so she really is your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Isaac answered him, well, because I thought I might die on account of her. And so Abimelech said, what have you done to us? One of the people could easily have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech warned all the people Whoever harms this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. Isaac would have had to get permission to live in this kingdom, this region uh, in Gerar. And in those sorts of negotiations, uh, historians tell us it wasn't unheard of for the man in Isaac's position to have to give up a woman into the harem, right? Now, that didn't seem to happen. Uh, but still, we have to conclude that in this situation, Isaac surrendered to fear. Fear pinned him down on the mat, and he tapped out, and fear won in his mind. Now, he would have known about the two times his dad had done this exact same thing in this exact same situation, in one case, in the same place, right? But he, he should have remembered that the lie doesn't work and how God had miraculously protected the family of faith just as he had promised to do so. And so we see that even though he's being obedient to stay where God had him, at the same time, he really wasn't allowing himself to trust the Lord in faith, right? So he's going through these motions of obedience in this situation, but can we conclude that he really trusts God in this decision? He doesn't. He says, oh man, I got to pull the ripcord here and figure out my own parachute in order to protect myself. And so he kind of has a strange, very human, very realistic um, um, reaction where he's obeying God, but also kind of not trusting God. And that's something that all of us struggle with. And it's such a good thing for us to see in the testimony of Scripture that these people who we admire so much had like passions like us. They weren't perfect, neither are we. But we're to look at Isaac's example and say, no, man, don't do that. Uh, the third time is not the charm on this lie. It did not work before. You know, what do they say? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. This is like, you know, sin about my wife once, twice, third time. It's not working. It's not working. You need a new plan. And the plan would have been to walk in the truth and trust the Lord and know that the Lord was going to carry them through just as he had for Abraham and Sarah. And so he's really not trusting in faith in this situation. As a result... Isaac crashes on the rocks of hypocrisy. You know, I'm sure you've heard it, 
But one of the biggest complaints the world at large has about Christians and about uh, the church is that we're hypocrites, right? That's, I'm sure you've had that thrown at you. have heard someone discuss that before. And you know what the sad thing is? Sometimes we are hypocrites. Isaac's being a hypocrite here. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, okay, well, we all have to be perfect. Hey, tough beans. None of us are going to be perfect. doesn't excuse hypocrisy at all. But, you know, sometimes non-believers throw up the accusation of hypocrisy just as a, an excuse, a reason to not talk about their own, uh, their own mortality and their own relationship to Jesus Christ. But sometimes Christians are hypocrites. Sometimes we do say we believe one thing, but act in a very different way. And we should note here from Isaac's example how damaging hypocrisy is to our witness and to the Christian witness in a community. One way to avoid hypocrisy is to avoid lies. Don't lie to people and don't lie to yourself. Walk in the truth. God has led us to a specific place, a place He wants us to tent temporarily, right, as we walk through this life. And he says, where I've scattered you, my desire is that you act like salt and light there. My desire is that you spread righteousness there, that you occupy till I come. Abimelech says, man, Isaac, you are bringing guilt on all of us. And that throws into relief what the servant of God is supposed to be doing in the community they find themselves in, and that's bearing spiritual fruit season after season. It's spreading righteousness around. It's being a preservative and a flavoring agent like salt. It's being light in the dark. Well, we're not to bring guilt or, 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 or hypocrisy or, or deception into the community that we find ourselves in. We're to bring these other things. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says this, always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Isaac fell short when he was provoked by fear. Verse 12, Isaac sowed seed in that land, and in that year he reaped a hundred times what was sown. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and kept getting richer until he was very wealthy. He had flocks of sheep and herds of cattle and many slaves, and the Philistines were envious of him. Philistine stopped up all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, filling them with dirt. And Abimelech said to Isaac, leave us, for you are much too powerful for us. Before we look at the provocation here, pause to enjoy God's grace, incredible grace, so much more gracious than we would be. His ambassador, his representative, his, you know, special chosen golden boy had really, 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 really blown it. Uh, he knew, he absolutely knew better. There's no reason for him to tell this lie and to embarrass God in front of these Philistines. And what do we see? God wasn't embarrassed. Uh, he wasn't happy. You know, you know, I'm sure he was disappointed in his heart about Isaac's choice to fall into sin, but he's not embarrassed. He doesn't turn his back on Isaac. He's not vindictive. He stays yoked with Isaac and he still works in his life, and he still showers blessings on his life. He says, yeah, yeah, I, I knew that you were going to do that from before the foundation of the earth. I love you still the same. And so the grace of God is incredible. Having come through the provocation of famine and fear, now Isaac will enter a period of life where he is provoked by foes. In this first wave, the people he had been living among for quite some time, people who had been his friends and acquaintances and, and people he traded with and worked with, uh, they have grown jealous of his success. And so they not only push him away, drive him out, they actually come against him and vandalize and ruin his water wells. That's a big deal. 
Now, there's a, a sort of principle here that we should take to heart, and that's that wealth brings problems. We all would like to have a little more than we have, but the more we have, the more trouble we are bound to face. And the problems could become very acute very quickly. You know, the more flocks Isaac had, the more water he would need right at the time where his access to water was being shut off. Uh, so an interesting principle. As a side note, we saw how lying doesn't help you, and here God's Word reveals that envy and jealousy doesn't help you either. Because think about it, by stopping up these wells and by driving Isaac away, these Philistines aren't helping themselves. They're hurting themselves. They're hurting their own economy. Yeah, they need water too, man. And they would have done business with Isaac and traded with him. It would have, it would have benefited their entire region and community to have this incredibly powerful, um, incredibly peaceful um, uh, herdsman sheik there in their midst who's like got tons and tons of crops that he, Isaac's not just going to eat all those crops. He's going to put them into the community and he's going to sell them and they're going to have all of this commerce. But instead, envy destroyed all of that. And so don't let jealousy into your heart. It's only going to hurt you in the end. Uh, and, we, and, and the Bible speaks to God's people and says, hey, you, you have to drive out jealousy. You have to uproot that from your heart through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, because it's only going to poison you and harm you in the end. Derek Kidner points out that in this provocation, Isaac is trapped between a hostile city full of foes and a waterless countryside. And so what would he do? Or what can we do when friends turn to foes or when we face this kind of opposition? Verse 17, so Isaac left there, camped in the Girar Valley and lived there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham that the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. He gave them the same names his father had given them. And then Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of spring water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and he said, the water's ours. So he named the well Esek because they argued with him. And then they dug another well and quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth and said, For now the Lord has made space for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Today, in the real world, Christians are being driven from their ho homes in places like Laos. And also it was reported on and revealed that there is a concerted effort in parts of Israel to drive Christians from their homes as well. Now, we are not facing that sort of outright persecution, praise the Lord. Maybe we will someday. If we do, it won't be easy. It won't be fun. It won't be comfortable. But we can be sure that the Lord will be with us. Look at Isaac. He sets up camp in a dried riverbed. He's got hostile enemies actively destroying his access to water. He had to be thinking, okay, what else are they going to do? Uh, they're destroying my water so that I'm trying to starve me out. I'm out here, I'm being pushed farther and farther into the wilderness, more and more isolated. But what do we see? We see the Lord's touch on his life cannot be thwarted. They can't separate God from him. The Lord is with him on the coast. He's with him in the, river, in the valley. Believe it or not, that's true. The Lord could be with us in the central coast, but the Lord's also here in the central valley. Everybody wants to escape the valley. I get it, but the Lord's with us here. Now, Isaac did not retaliate. He just moved on. And then he moved on again. And he shows a remarkable level of patience. Remember, he, the, the household of Abraham had hundreds of trained fighters proven in battle. 
out there in the wild, I'm sure you could make a few herdsmen disappear without too much trouble. Have you seen these stories that they're starting to find bodies in barrels in Lake Mead all of a sudden? And they're like, oh yeah, that's from the 80s, that's from the 70s or whatever. I'm guessing that in rural uh, uh, Girar Valley, uh, you could probably make a herdsman or two disappear when you're Isaac. But what does Isaac do? He doesn't retaliate. He just keeps digging. The people around him were unreasonable. They were unfriendly. They were targeting him unfairly. But he comported himself like a gentleman, giving up some of his rights in order to keep the peace. These were his wells. Remember, his father had done a whole legal deal with the previous Abimelech to say, these are my wells. They're mine. I dug them. And Abimelech said, yeah, I agree to that. And so these were his legally. And he gives that up in order to keep the peace. Now, generally speaking, we can keep the peace or be at peace in the hostile world around us. And we're called to be peacemakers. Now, it's not always possible. At some point, opposition and uh, difference and persecution become so serious that perhaps God's people have to take flight. But in our regular lives, facing foes, uh, the kind of foes that you might face, the ones who steal clients or, or backbite you or cut in line or make accusations that aren't true to your supervisor, those kinds of foes. Well, the Bible says we are to live at peace as far as it is possible with us. And we do so by responding to provocation with calm and patience and even generosity toward those who come against us. And Isaac does a good job at this. You know, Jesus said, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So look at verse 23. From there, he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him that night. And he said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Don't be afraid for I'm with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant, Abraham. So he built an altar there and he called on the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there. Isaac's servants also dug a well there. As the Lord had spoken his promises multiple times to Abraham. So now we see him speaking multiple times to Isaac. You know, sometimes we look back at a period of church history like the book of Acts or other times of historic revival, and, you know, we, we tend to wish God would do things like that again. Lord, like, speak like that again, move like that again, work like that again, and that's great. I mean, those are, those are good goals and aspirations for us to have. But through Isaac's example here, we see that God's heart is to speak to us in the here and now, just as he's spoken before. He's not withdrawn. He doesn't have to be convinced to, to work in our lives or, or be, you know, sort of coerced to come back around again. He's just as excited about you as he was about the church in the book of Acts. He's with us and he loves us. Now, the Lord says here, don't be afraid. Like I said, I'm sure Isaac felt pretty vulnerable out there in a riverbed in the dark, surrounded by people who hated him, wondering if the next time they weren't coming to stop up his wells, but to burn down his tents. But no matter how weak our physical position is in this life, we are safe in the Lord's hands. We may have our wells destroyed, but nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can, can drive a wedge between God and us unless we are the ones who push God away and say, hey, Lord, I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to interact with you. I don't want to follow after your leading. Uh, those, those principalities and powers, death nor life, anything that we face cannot do that to us because God keeps us safe in his arms. In the midst of this provocation, Isaac not only showed patience and meekness and grace, uh, we also see he responded with worship. 
In the midst of all of this, what does he do? He's like, I'm going to build an altar. He doesn't build uh, a tower. He doesn't build a wall. He builds an altar. He called on the name of the Lord. And so he focuses his attention on his faith and on his heavenly father rather than on his foes. Verse 26, now Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? You hated me and sent me away from you. And they replied, we have clearly seen how the Lord has been with you. We think there should be an oath between two parties, between us and you. Let us make a covenant with you. You will not harm us just as we have not harmed you, but have only done what was good to you, sending you away in peace. And you are now blessed by the Lord. And so Isaac prepared a banquet for them, and they ate and drank, and they got up early in the morning and swore an oath to each other. Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. On that same day, Isaac's servants came to tell him about the well they had dug, saying to him, we found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is still Beersheba today. Abimelech. Homestretch. Here we go. Abimelech claims they had only done good to Isaac. Well, he knows that isn't true. He has to admit, that, man, there's no reason, Isaac, that you should be thriving out here given all the trouble that we've caused you, and yet I have to conclude that God is with you. God wants to make His withness clear through your life. In a sense, God wants to take your life and magnetize it. Do you ever do that with like, um, like a screwdriver? You take a magnet and you run it against there so that it'll magnetize the end of the screwdriver and hold the screws? And so in a sense, God wants to magnetize your life so that he can draw the hard, metally hearts of unbelievers toward you so that they can hear about who God is and what he's capable of and how he saves. Isaac was gracious enough to be trusted by Abimelech even after being caught in his lie a while back. Isaac was willing to receive his foes. He was willing to endure an offense. He was generous to overlook some of these issues for the greater good of peace and unity. Notice he doesn't bring up the wells to Abimelech, and that's one way he was different than his dad. When the last Abimelech had come to speak to Abraham, Abraham said, yeah, let's make a covenant of peace. By the way, your, your people have been messing with my wells, and they had to work through that. Isaac, this is the one point where he's not like his dad. He doesn't bring it up at all. He doesn't want to harm his enemies. He wants to be at peace with them. He wants to bless them. He gives them a feast and a place to stay. Listen, the fact that Abimelech stayed the night is a testimony to Isaac's graciousness. The king wasn't afraid he'd get his throat cut while he slept, right? This is the kind of thing that happens. He says, hey, we're enemies. I'm afraid you're going to harm us, and you know we should have a peace accord. And Isaac was so gracious and so gentle and so patient and so meek and so generous that he said, yeah, we're safe to sleep here. We're good out here in some weird riverbed like a million miles from anything. Yeah, let's do it. And so this is incredible. We also note Isaac's diligence in the face of provocation. He just kept digging wells. There in verses, verse 32, they put another hole in the ground, and the Lord meets him once again with provision. And so Isaac is sort of one and a half for three, I'd say, when dealing with provocation. Uh, he's seen it from famine, and he obeyed the Lord, but he had trouble trusting the Lord, so that's the half. Uh, from fear, he botched that one, and then from his foes, he, man, flying colors passes that one. But then there's one more, his family. Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took as his wives Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hethite, and Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hethite. 
They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. It's hard to believe that Isaac would have been negligent about his son's wives, especially when you consider the grand saga of how his dad dealt with getting him, Isaac, a wife. It says Esau took his wives, signaling perhaps that he refused to be under his dad's authority on this issue. The terms used there for make life bitter can mean that these ladies defied and provoked Isaac and Rebekah. In the end, we cannot force our family to do what is right or to do what is godly, but when provoked by family, we should remain faithful. As we saw last time, toward the end of his life, it seems that Isaac slacked off in spiritual things. He becomes more like Esau and less like Abraham, and it leads to greater family division. We want to follow through in God's grace and power, doing our part to live out the faith for the good of our families. And so are you being provoked by famine or fear or foes or by family? The good news is that God has equipment for you. God has direction for you. God has help for you. Don't go all Iron Mike on those around you. Instead, be led, walk in the truth, be patient, be gracious, be faithful, and you'll be blessed.